or to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, for me, it's been a, a pretty average week amongst the, uh, the people that I know in this city. Let me just tell you a couple of uh, situations that I've come across this, this week. They're actually chosen because they're people that you don't know and won't know, and uh, they're slightly disguised, but uh, I think you'll find that they are familiar. A young woman set up home some years ago with her boyfriend and, and lived with him for several years. But recently, um, she decided that she needed to regularise their relationship a little. She decided that at least they needed shared bank accounts, that sort of thing. He left. And she's devastated. But uh, he said, well, isn't that what living together is all about? You find out whether you can spend the rest of your life with a person. And I found out I can't. What's wrong with that? wonder why that young woman's friends are so angry. Or this week again, a wife and mother announced to her uh, friends that she's leaving her husband and children. She said life has moved on for her and uh, the marriage has grown stale. She needs to be free. After all, it would be wrong, wouldn't it, to uh, stay in a miserable marriage? I wonder why her husband was seen by me this week crying in public. wonder why her children are showing signs of severe emotional distress. And I think we all know that those two stories are just the tip of the iceberg, aren't they? Many people live what um, Henry Theroux called lives of quiet desperation. I mean, I could tell you as well about the husband who is intoxicated by the uh, wealth and influence that he's gained in his company. He tells me about it all the time. His wife is actually tempted to leave him, but she likes the money. His, his daughter at the moment, hero worships him, tells her friends a bit proudly about all their expensive holidays. But you know, I'm almost certain one day she'll hate him. I suspect one day she will grow into a bitter and damaged adult. Because he never shows her any real love. Seems to me, you see, that the world isn't working terribly well, frankly. 
Of course, in some ways, that's always been the case, but actually something distinctly new is happening today. Our society, some people say, is the first one in history where actually we have abandoned wholesale any belief that there is a universal moral framework that all people ought to abide by. Graham said it, didn't he, in his introduction. That illustration used uh, for so many children in the country. Young people are taught at a very profound level there are no right answers. There are just the choices you make. Talk of uh, morals is, uh, is completely out. There's no agreed moral framework at all. Actually, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, in a book uh, entitled Whose Justice? Which Rationality? says, actually, we talk a lot about justice in our modern world, but we can't agree what real justice is. Is justice uh, protecting the liberty of country people to practice an ancient country sport, or is it about protecting foxes? Is justice pro-life or pro-women's freedom? Is justice about giving couples the maximum opportunity to uh, separate and find the perfect partner, or about giving children the maximum opportunity to have two parents to raise them? We don't agree as a country. Is it, I wonder, a coincidence that it always seems to be the people with the most powerful position in society who prevail in those discussions? And we tried to, to, tried to persuade ourselves that careful, rational arguments will lead, lead us to the answer, but it, it, it doesn't work. In practice, we just find that we are a group of competing interest groups at loggerheads with one another. There's no meeting of minds these days. No commonly agreed moral framework. There's nothing, nothing that everybody agrees is right and wrong. There's just things that are right for me or wrong for me. That young man who walked out on his live-in girlfriend, according to our modern world, wasn't wrong. He was just making a choice. The fact that his choice to uh, follow the values that he's chosen for his life didn't coincide with the values that his girlfriend had chosen for her life were her hard luck. It is fundamental then to our culture that there is no such thing as right and wrong and yet it is tearing our culture apart. You know, the more I live, the more I interact with ordinary people in their public and their private lives, the more I can become absolutely burningly certain of this. We need God as the foundation for life. It's not a trite little truism, you know. It's not, uh, it's not something to be scorned as the preacher's rhetoric. It is the most fundamental truth there is. 
seems to me it is no accident that the first of the Ten Commandments is this one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First of all, it says that because we need God to be free. That's why it's prefaced by this reminder that God has brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt. He has made them free. They once lived under the oppression of a man called Pharaoh who claimed he was a god. And God had liberated them. God had set them on their feet. Now God says, I want you to stay free. And if you're to stay free, you must serve me. With the benefit of the, uh, the, the New Testament, we actually know that the freedom that God finally offers us is far greater than the Israelites experienced in being liberated from, from Egypt. No, the freedom that God finally gives us is the freedom that he won for us through Christ's death on the cross. The freedom from eternal condemnation because Christ paid for our sins. The freedom from uh, uh, the, the fear of death because Christ rose from the dead and assured us that for those who trust Jesus Christ there is eternal life beyond the grave. There is eternal joy being united with God in the new heaven and the new earth. God is the giver of freedom. He loves to do that to his people. Most people, most of the time, though, live in a false world, in a world that is anything but free, in a world where actually they are under oppression, though very rarely they see it. I actually saw the film The Matrix this week. I bet most people have seen it. Hands up who's seen The Matrix. Yes, I've been a long time um, uh, getting to see it. So in, in the film, a computer program, a programmer makes an incredible discovery. The reality that everyone thinks they experience is an illusion. Everyone's brain is actually plugged into a giant computer which feeds a form of virtual reality directly into their minds so that their minds are kept happy where their bodies are actually being farmed like battery hens by an alien intelligence. The uh, programmer, played by Keanu Reeves, discovers all this because he's met by a man. And this man asks, says to Reeves, haven't you always had the intuition that there is more to this world? Haven't you from time to time sensed that something is going on? See, the Matrix plays on an intuition that we have, that there is more to this world than we immediately see. That actually, if we could only see it, we are by nature enslaved. We are enslaved by our own passions. We are enslaved actually by mysterious forces of evil commanded by the devil himself. And most of the time we don't know it. Just occasionally though, 
human beings get a glimpse of what is happening to their own soul. Just occasionally we see how our soul is being eaten away and damaged and ruined and destroyed. Sometimes we see it in the, the terrible things that we quite by surprise do to other people. How could I be like that, we say to ourselves. Sometimes it's in the terrible shock of what other people do to us. However it is, sometimes, sometimes we get that intuition that something terrible is going on. At one point in the Matrix, uh, Keanu Reeves is offered a choice. He can choose to stay in that fantasy world. And there's a lot of attraction to that. But he will always have a sense that there is something more. Or he can choose to know the truth. That will be hard, but in the end he will be free. And Reeves chooses freedom. See, the real God does the same to us. He says, know the truth. Discover the truth. The truth will set you free. It may be hard sometimes. There may be battles to be fought that we had never even thought about before. But when we come to know him as the only God, we are set free. We need God as the foundation for our lives to be free. And we need God to know how to live once we are set free. That's why this is the first commandment. We'll get on to other instructions in subsequent weeks, like do not steal, do not murder. But uh, all, what we need to accept first and foremost, right at the beginning, is that right and wrong is defined by God. Those Israelites who had been liberated from slavery in Egypt needed to know that the first rule about living a free life is that they must accept God consciously as their ruler. They must accept what he says to them. Because actually without the help of God, we will not come to a position where we really understand what is right and wrong. It's, it's been very popular for a long time to propose that you can work out a moral code without any reference to God. And certainly it is true that human beings have certain fundamental moral instincts which they are always drawn to. All cultures have laws respecting life and the family and property. But actually, if we are left on our own, human beings will always have their blind spots. They will always distort right and wrong to their own advantage. In the end, actually, we will find, as we're finding in our society today, that people are living isolated lives, following their own little morality, and competing with others. Because we're, we're like children. 
If you watch children, you see, children know right and wrong. But somehow they only, uh, the, the justice only becomes really important to them when they've been unjustly treated, don't they? Children always squabble. And the winner in the squabble quietly overlooks the fact that he's not been entirely just. The loser, of course, screams like blue murder about the injustice. Children need parents to prompt their consciences, to arbitrate, to train them, to make sure that in fact it's not just might that is right, but real justice that wins the day. I would love to say we grow out of that need completely, but sadly we do not. Adults without a conscious recognition of someone to help us to see what is right and wrong always end up just being sophisticated children who write PhD theses about why they're right and other people are wrong rather than just uh, screaming on, the, on the, uh, the mat in front of the fire. But they're just the same. We need God, then, to help us to know how to live. Maybe that you're here this morning knowing that God is actually not the foundation of your life. Maybe other people think he is, but you know he's not. Especially you know that the decisions about how to live your life have actually, in the end, been made without any real reference to God. I want to ask you, will you think again? Perhaps something has happened to start you thinking again, like that poor girl whose boyfriend walked out on her. She suddenly realised how she never really was united with him, never did really have any common ground with him. He was just trying a relationship out. She was trying to be faithful. Or if some shock has happened to you, has made you think again, let me say to you very, very clearly, we will only be free when we accept God as our God. We will only live free lives when we accept that God has the right to tell us how to live them. More than that, actually. You will only really be able to live freely in relationship with other people when you live amongst a people who also accept God as the ruler of your life. That is one of the beauties about a real Christian community. We can entrust ourselves to one another because we have a Heavenly Father whom we owe a common allegiance to. We need God.
But the main thrust of the first commandment is slightly different. The main thrust is this. We must renounce all other gods. That's what he says, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. Literally, he says, you shall have no other gods to my face. Elsewhere, that phrase uh, means, uh, implies hostile opposition, as when men square up to each other for, for a fight. Immediately, actually, that, that uh, raises questions for us. Surely the Bible says there's only one God. What's uh, Moses doing, and God himself doing, talking about other gods? It's actually true that the Bible says that ultimately all other gods are illusions. They are not real. I mean, the prophet Isaiah especially is particularly outspoken about that. Uh, uh, for instance, in chapter 45, verses 5 to 6 say, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. There is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Or verse 21 of that chapter, There is no God apart from me. There is none but me, God says. Actually, that same sentiment is here in Deuteronomy, just crossing the page in chapter 6. Verse 4, a great statement repeated regularly by uh, the Jews ever since uh, uh, the days of Moses. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But you see, the fact that other gods are not real doesn't mean that they are not dangerous because they can become real in our hearts people who people who serve them serve an illusion an apparition but that is actually deeply damaging for them at best those people venerate a, a half picture of the living god of jesus christ but at worst they they worship a nothing a demon which will destroy them we actually have many people in, the, in this city which act, who actually worship other gods in, in very much the same way as they did in Moses' day. Those people are in terrible bondage. And when you get to know their lives, their lives demonstrate that. Don't be in any doubt about it. We uh, uh, also have people in this city who claim to worship Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, but they also sometimes secretly venerate another god, perhaps a, a Hindu deity or whatever. It will not work. If the living God is despised, he becomes our enemy. You shall have no other gods to my face, he says. But actually, most of us, perhaps when we look on that sort of activity, feel slightly smug because we don't go in for the overt worship of other deities. Sadly, the New Testament will not let us off the hook so lightly. The New Testament makes it very plain that anything, anything that is more important to us than God is actually another God to us. Philippians 3.19, for instance, Paul says that of certain people, their God is their stomach. Or in Ephesians 5, 5, in Colossians 3, 5, Paul says that a greedy person is an idolater. 
And the context of those verses, I think, makes it plain that Paul's not just talking about people who eat a little too much. He's making it plain that people whose, whose general bodily appetites, their natural desires, are overemphasized, are worshipped, are actually people who have other gods. And that never, never works. Jesus was absolutely clear. Our hearts cannot serve two masters. Jesus said it in the context of money. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Hence the title of this sermon. Our hearts are indivisible. We cannot hold two gods in our hearts at the same time. One will drive out the other. The living God says, we must drive out the false gods or they will win in our lives. Everything else, all other things, must be treated as good gifts of the living God. They must not become gods themselves. Sex is an obvious one, isn't it? Often mentioned in the New Testament for good reason, because sex is a particularly powerful and precious natural appetite. It's therefore more prone to becoming a god to us. And doesn't our society worship sex? Some people, you know, are just, frankly, just completely incredulous that anyone could be satisfied in life without sex. Sex is a wonderful gift from God, but it is a terrible God itself. And you know as well as I how many lives have been ruined and destroyed by that. How many Christian lives as well have been turned upside down and deeply damaged, if not destroyed, by allowing that appetite to become a God. Some people worship money. Their decisions are ultimately shaped by the need to support the standard of living that they feel they should have, that they have chosen. Some people worship power and success and uh, reputation. Their bottom line is, other people must look up to me. Some people worship human relationships. Their relationship with God is not primary. Their relationship with their spouse or their children or their hoped-for relationship is the most important thing in their life. And God can take second fiddle. No, he can't. You shall have no other gods before me. You know, actually, we, we never know, I don't think, that we have other gods in our life until the moment we have to make a choice. Up to that moment, we always convince ourselves that they are appetites that we've got in control. But when we have to make a choice, that's when the truth 
really hits us. A young woman meets an absolutely lovely man. He is gentle and kind, but he's not a Christian. And she knows that she could not serve God wholeheartedly if she married him. She must choose. A man meets the girl of his dreams. Unfortunately, he's married and she's not his wife. He must choose. A person is offered a great job, but it's in a field which they know would morally compromise them. They must choose. A family has the chance to move out into a lovely house in the countryside, but actually they know in their, uh, their heart of hearts that they can uh, serve God's kingdom better in the city. They must choose. A man has the offer of a massively better paid job. He'll be able to give away so much more money. But he knows he'll be expected to work all hours. He knows he'll be expected to give up his church responsibilities. He knows his time with the children will be deeply compromised. He must choose. I've been a Christian long enough now to have had the opportunity of seeing people making life choices and then actually seeing over the years how those choices pan out. And I've seen many, many people in my time hit their moment of choice. The moment when they have to say, is God my God? Or is this other thing my God? And I've seen how their Christian lives have either grown and flourished until today they're standing like great oak trees amongst God's people. Or how actually their relationship with God has withered away and sometimes even died. I recently met uh, the relative of an old friend of mine who I'd lost contact with. I remember his moment of choice. His moment of choice came 17 years ago now. He chose another God. Though he always said clearly that he was still a Christian. After that moment, uh, to my great sadness, we, we drifted apart. And so when I met this relative of his, I was, I was very interested to find out how he's getting on. I knew, actually, that he'd risen very high in his chosen career. I saw him on the telly once. I knew that he was comfortably off 
But this is what the relatives said of him. His relatives said, he's not the man he once was. Wouldn't that be a terrible verdict on your life? He's not the man he once was. She's not the woman she once was. She's grown older, but she's not grown wiser. He's grown more prominent, but he's empty. What is your other God, then? What is the decision, the choice that you have to make? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Perhaps you want to just ask God for the strength to choose him right now. Our living Heavenly Father, without your help, we won't be free. Without your help, we will always find ourselves dragged back into slavery to passions and emotions and sins that we can't control. So Lord, as you have instructed us, as you have told us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. We ask now, as weak people, that you would empower us to do just that by your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, work amongst us and help us to choose life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
time and energy and resources on the, on the poor and the needy than be labelled as callous and uncaring. Because more than that, I am convinced that the reputation of Jesus Christ in this area depends at least in part on our ability to live out Jesus' words. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another.